Please take your scriptures and open with me to Hebrews chapter 9 as we continue in our journey through Hebrews. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, classic book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children enter that magical place called Narnia through a wardrobe. It looked really common, kind of on the outside, but as they entered it, it gave way to a, to a place of wonder, of, a, of adventure, and unexpected meaning. The tabernacle the the Jews were instructed to construct was not particularly striking when it comes to ancient Near Eastern places of worship. It looked quite ordinary on the outside, much like any other, but it was filled with wonder and it was filled with meaning. And that's what our text today is going to unfold for us. What that meaning was. So look with me at chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to God's word. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, it was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was contained the golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with the food and the drink and the various washing regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
for with the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the perfection of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. Please pray with me. Lord God, Spirit, help me. Help me communicate to your people the wonderful meaning that you have for us, the truth that you have for us, the challenge that you have for us in these verses, and change us by only your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews is, as I've said several times throughout our time together in this book, is a difficult yet glorious book. Because three-quarter of it, three-quarters of the book of Hebrews is, is an extended argument, an extended logical argument. And as we enter chapter 9, we need to keep in mind what came before so that this makes sense. So the author has been arguing that Christ is greater, right? That's the sermon series title, Greater Than. Greater than angels, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. He brings a greater rest, a greater Sabbath. And then in, verse, in chapter 5, he starts an extended logical argument about he is greater than the priesthood, right? And he goes on to say he's a greater... High priest in chapters 5, 6, and 7, of a greater covenant in chapter 8, which was last week, and this week in chapter 9, in a greater tabernacle. So he's a high priest of a greater covenant in a greater tabernacle. You see, Jesus did not come, he was not born to take the place of the high priest. The author makes that very clear in chapter 8. He came to be a high priest in a different order of Melchizedek, in a different tabernacle. He's to be a better high priest in a greater tabernacle, and greater for two reasons that I want to explore with you this morning. Greater for two reasons. And the first reason is that Christ gives us better access. Christ gives us better access to God. To show this to the readers, the author sets out to describe the access provided in the old tabernacle, the old covenant, right? And he goes into some detail here about what the tabernacle looked like and how it was set up. And, and since the original audience really knew this very well, he says in verse 5, I'm not going to take much time to unpack this. They kind of got it immediately. But for us, 3,500 years removed, ethnically removed, I want to slow down for a second and talk about the tabernacle and what, what kind of access it gave. And for ease, I have a picture up here. I don't normally do this, but it's very helpful. We can get a better idea of what the, the author is describing here. So, 
If you follow along, you can look at the picture from time to time. The tabernacle was an area cordoned off by curtains. It was approximately half the size of a football field. Access was through a 30-foot wide curtain on the east side. That's on the left side of the picture. It's outside the picture. Inside the courtyard is where the Israelite men could come. And there were two pieces of furniture. When you entered, you saw these two pieces of furniture. First was the altar where the sacrifices were burnt. And the second was this huge basin of water called the lava, where the priests would ceremonially wash before entering the covered tent that was in the middle. And that covered tent was approximately 45 feet by 15 feet. And in it were two rooms. And the first room you encountered as you went through that second curtain was called the holy place. And as you entered on your right, you would see a table with 12 loaves of bread placed on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel in the presence of God. And on the left, you would see an ornate gold candelabra with seven flames. And that candelabra had to be continually lit, continually fed oil. Now, straight ahead as you entered, there was, in front of this big, thick curtain, was, was a box, and that was where there was incense that was continually burning before the Lord, representing the prayers of the people. And behind that thick curtain, that third thick curtain, was the Holy of Holies. And that was a perfect cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, that gold box that was described here. And inside that gold box was an urn that that contained some of the manna from the wilderness, Aaron's staff that budded, and also the two stone tablets of the covenant, the two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. On the cover of the ark were two angels. We don't know exactly the design. Maybe it is like Raiders of the Lost Ark with the things extended. We're not sure. But there were two angels there. And between those angels, those cherubim, was what was called the mercy seat. So in between, in the center of the cover, was the mercy seat. And on that mercy seat, the, the high priest would come in once a year and sprinkle blood on that mercy seat. And right above that mercy seat was the presence of God. The actual presence of God. The whole reason for the tabernacle was to provide access to God. Access to Yahweh. Access to the God who walked with Adam in the garden. Access to the God who spoke with Abraham. Access to the God who wrestled with Jacob. Access to the God who dispersed the people at Babel. Access to the God who destroyed the people at Sodom and Gomorrah. Access to the God who sent the plagues on the people of Egypt. Access to the perfectly loving and perfectly holy God. 
Think about that a second. This structure was designed to bring people into the presence, give people access to that God. We can say that that was the most dangerous place on earth. That's why access was difficult, fleeting, and selective. Access through the tabernacle was difficult, fleeting, and selective. It was selective in that only Israelites could go into the outer courtyard even. Nobody from the nations, only Israelites. And then only priests could go into the holy place. Only people in the line of of Aaron. And then only one person could go through that third curtain into the Holy of Holies. And then only once a year. And then only for moments into the presence of God. For all practical purposes, the vast majority of people never got access to God. So access was selective. It was also fleeting. You couldn't remain in the holy place or even the holy of holy place. These were not places a priest would linger. To go into the holy place, the the priest would go in to replace the bread and then leave once a week. He would go in to keep the oil for the candelabra burning and then leave. He would go in to put more incense on that altar but then leave. And think about the high priest. He went in once a year. And it was a dangerous experience. And he would go only go in for a short period of time on that Day of Atonement. Access was fleeting to God. And also access was difficult. For an Israelite to enter that courtyard, he had to bring a sacrifice. He just couldn't go in. For a priest to enter the holy place, they had to ceremonially wash before going in. And for the high priest to enter the holy of holies, it says right here in verse 7, he had to sacrifice an animal for his sins and the unintentional sins of the people. And only once a year, and only for a terrifying few minutes. Access was limited. When I used to get sick as a child, my mother would keep me home. We only had a few channels in the 70s. And you had to watch reruns of whatever was on. And so I would just watch TV and recover. And there was this one show that was on reruns at that time called Get Smart. Do you remember Get Smart? And, you know, the, he would pull up to that building in that wonderful red sunbeam and then get out and go down into the basement of, the, of this building into a secret hallway. And then he'd walk down that hallway and there'd be those doors, right, that would open and close, come up and dun dun right? And he'd get to that telephone booth and that was the goal, to get to that telephone booth, to be given orders. Uh, whole opening sequence was, was meant to show how limited access was to that silly telephone booth. 
think about it. The tabernacle provided access, but you had to go through three curtains to get there. You had to wash and sacrifice. And you could only enter infrequently at best. Access to God was difficult, fleeting, and selective. And verse 8 tells us why. Did you catch it? Verse 8 says, By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened. The limited access of God was planned. It was to whet their appetite, if you will, for something greater. The tabernacle caught, taught the people to look for something better, to give them a sense of anticipation for greater access. John MacArthur wrote, The tabernacle was a giant picture of Jesus Christ. He went on to write, everywhere you looked in the tabernacle, you would see Christ. The tabernacle was given to whet the Israelites' appetite for the coming Messiah. I think Jesus was connecting those dots so many times in the New Testament, brothers and sisters, wasn't he? I mean, think about it when, when he said to the Pharisees on that day, I am the gate Whoever enters through me will be saved. Where do you think his mind was? Maybe that 30-foot gate that everybody had to enter on the east side. Or when he said, I am the light of the world. Where was his mind? Maybe on that candelabra that had to be continually lit to give light in a very dark place. Or instead of that thick curtain that separated the high priest from the Holy of Holies, remember when he was hanging on the cross and the curtain split from the top to the bottom? Giving access. I mean, how much, how much more obvious could God have been on that day? From top to bottom. It's very specific. Split. Access to God is open. Hebrews 10:19 will go on to say, "We have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open to us through the curtain, which is his body, in case we didn't get it." Stuart Oliot says, "Christianity and only Christianity is a religion of access. No other religion on earth can even offer it." It is a privilege which is enjoyed by believers in Christ and nobody else. How wonderful that is. The author makes this conclusion in in verse 11, this same conclusion. Look at it with me. He says, But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not, meant, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. You see, Jesus Christ entered the heavenly tabernacle, not by animal sacrifice, but by sacrificing himself. And he gives us access to God through his sacrifice. 
I mean, that's, that's the nutshell gospel right there, isn't it? I mean, he lived the life that we can't live perfectly so that we could have his righteousness. He died the death that he did. He let his body be split in two so that we would have access to God. Because of Christ's work, every believer can approach God with confidence and boldness. Every believer can approach God with confidence and boldness. Hebrews 4.16 says, Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Unlike the high priest that would have to sweat before going through the curtain into the Holy of Holies, we can go in any time. We can approach with confidence because of Christ. We can even linger there. Have you thought about that? You know, last week we talked about that there was there's no seat, no chair, no sofa in the tabernacle. Not in the holy place, not in the Holy of Holies. It was not a place to linger. But we're allowed to linger there in prayer. It was so wonderful a moment ago. I hope you appreciated the time we spent in prayer, lingering in God's presence. That's something that few people before Christ ever did. And our access is unlimited. We can, we can approach boldly any time. At your home, at your quiet time as you're driving to work. At work, before you go to bed. And our access is easy. We don't have to work for it. Because the work has already been done in Jesus Christ. There's a second benefit, not just access, but we also have a better conscience. And I think this is a, a hard, even harder one for us to get our minds around. We have a better, a better conscience because of Christ. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, According to this arrangement, right, the tabernacle arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. As we said back in Sunday school, you know, as you're reading your Bible, there should be some verses that you just stumble over. You go, and, and you have to stop. That one should be one. They, their consciences were never clear. Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Art of Turning, defines the conscience as the moral faculty within human beings that assesses what is good and what is bad. Okay, that's your conscience. It's a God-given instrument that we can assess what is good and what is bad. Mark Twain put it this way, man is the only animal that blushes. Martin Luther King Jr. said, Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Only conscience asks the question, 
Is it right? Sarah was a woman who inherited $20 million in the late 1800s. A huge sum of money in those days. She was well known in high society. Just to mention her last name, you would know who she was. She was sought after on boards and lenders and politicians. They all wanted her support and money. Sarah had it all, including misery. Her only child died at five weeks, and then shortly thereafter, her husband. She was left alone with her name, her memories, and her money. She moved from Connecticut to San Jose, California, and purchased an eight-room farmhouse on 160 acres. And that's when things began to get strange. She hired 16 carpenters to work on her house 24 hours a day, every day, for the next 38 years. She had strange requests, like each window had to have 13 panes. Each wall had to have 13 panels. Each closet, 13 hooks. Chandeliers, 13 globes. The floor plan was bizarre as well. Corridors were put in at random. Some led nowhere. Sets of stairs led to a ceiling. There were tunnels and trap doors and secret passageways. The work on this mansion finally came to a halt when it covered six acres, had six kitchens, 13 bathrooms, 40 stairways, 47 fireplaces, 52 skylights, 467 doors, 10,000 windows, 160 rooms, and one bell tower. What would drive Sarah to build such a house? Well, Sarah's last name was Winchester. Several decades earlier, her father had invented the Winchester repeating rifle, which revolutionized the firearm industry. What brought millions of dollars to the Winchester family was also responsible for killing thousands of people, and that tormented Sarah. It weighed heavily on Sarah's conscience. Later on in life, when she was asked about her house, she said she was building rooms for all the dead. Whether right or wrong, Sarah Winchester's conscience crushed her, drove her mad. She was never able to come out from under that guilt. Never able to come out from under that guilt. The old covenant people were never able to come out from under their guilt. This is what they experienced. Verse 13 tells us that the sacrifices they offered really were just exterior. Verse 9 tells us it could not touch, it could not perfect their consciences. God provided the tabernacle to cover over their sins, but did nothing for their conscience. Has your conscience ever bothered you about something? Imagine if that would never go away. You know, the beautiful thing about being a New Covenant born-again believer is that 
our conscience actually can become clear. It can become clean. New covenant, old covenant worshipers never felt that sense of cleansing. Never that, that internal exhale after we take communion and remind ourselves again of why we have a clean conscience. Do you ever feel your conscience is assuaged after communion? You should. Are you beginning to feel the weight of the author's argument here? That, that, that this new covenant is new and better? And that the, what Christ did is better than what they had? And where he did this is better and greater? Think of that a moment. An Old Testament believer's conscience remained unchanged. They were never free from the guilt. Albert Speer, that name might be familiar to a few of you. Albert Speer was Adolf Hitler's confidant and right-hand man who kept the German economy going during World War II. He was also the only man of the 24 war criminals in Nuremberg that actually pled guilty. And for that, he was sentenced to 20 years in Spandau prison. He was interviewed years later on Good Morning America, and the interview read an excerpt from one of his books that had been written years earlier, and I quote, Spear wrote, Guilt can never be forgiven and shouldn't be. The interview asked Spear if he still felt the same way. Spear paused for a second and said, I served 20 years, and I could say I'm a free man, that my conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time of my punishment. But I can't do that. I still carry the burden of what happened to millions of people under Hitler's lifetime, and I can't get rid of it. The interview pressed in a little bit and said, you really don't think you'll ever be able to have a clear conscience? To which Spear replied, I don't think that's possible. That's actually the truth when we're talking about people in the Old Covenant. A clear conscience was not possible. One day when disputing with the Pharisees, Jesus told them this, if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. You see what he was saying there? I mean, it's packed with meaning. Not only are you free from from the curse of sin and death and the control of sin in your life, but you're free in your conscience. Your conscience is is cleared. Belief in Christ cleans your conscience. That's what freedom in Christ means, or at least partially. You're also free from the weight of that guilt that you feel. So for past regrets and sins you cannot seem to shake, if you have confessed and repented, Christ has forgiven you. Brother, sister, Christ has forgiven you. 
your conscience is clear. If you're a child who has dishonored or disobeyed your parents, and if you've confessed and repented that sin, Christ has forgiven you. Your conscience is clear. For the person who has hurt another person through gossip or slander, if you've confessed that sin, Christ has forgiven you. Your conscience should not bother you. If it is, it's not from God. If you're a man who had an addiction to pornography and if you've confessed and repented of that sin, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. Your conscience is clean. If you're a person who has come out of the homosexual lifestyle and if you've confessed and repented that sin, that, that sin, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. You shouldn't carry a burden of guilt. If you're a woman here who has had an abortion, if you've confessed and repented that sin, Christ's work is sufficient. You don't have to spend any more time in Spandau prison. There's only one way to have a clear conscience, and that is through trusting what Jesus did for you on the cross. Through believing that he lived the perfect life that you cannot, by trusting that he paid the penalty for your sin by dying and being buried. And by believing that through his bodily resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God the Father Almighty, that if you trust in him, you have a clean conscience. Because of what Christ has gone through, the heavenly tabernacle on your behalf. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you for your word. Spirit, change us because of it. Change the direction we're going. Change the thoughts in our mind. Clean our conscience. Help us to have that wonderful mental exhale, not carrying around that baggage anymore and knowing that it was placed on your shoulders. Thank you, Christ. That the penalty for it is paid. Help us to live and understand what it is to live in the freedom of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.